of applause, how many of y'all think if the world were to end right now, <laughs> clap if you think you'd go to heaven? That's a shame. <laughs> you know all y'all ain't going to no heaven. Half of y'all snuck liquor in here. Couldn't even get your hands up to clap. Let me ask you something. How you figure just cause you clap, you going to heaven? It ain't that easy. It's hard to get to heaven. Why you think you hear old people singing that old Negro spiritual? I'm just going to walk around, walk around heaven all day. That's because there's going to be plenty of room. <laughs> you ain't ever heard nobody say they're going to walk around hell all day, have you? Uh-uh, because it's going to be packed. Oh, they're going to be up in there. I just, I'm going to tell you something else about Judgment Day, too. That's going to be one line you're going to be in. You ain't going to be in a big hurry to get up front. You know how you're always cutting in line, trying to act like you was there? Hey, 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 I've been here, I'm trying to tell you now. I've been here all day. No, no, not on Judgment Day. No, on Judgment Day, you're going to be in line looking seasick. Be in line talking about... mess you up is if you see somebody get sent back the other way that you just knew was going to make it to heaven. <laughs> the hell going on? Who judging today? <laughs> then you step up and you hear some bad news. Go to hell. Oh, hell no! Some of y'all couldn't go with me on that one. I saw, I saw you. <laughs> hey, hey, hold up, Steve. I know you ain't said hell no to the Lord. You know if you say that, you know you're going to hell in. Ain't no need to stand and trying to stand up there and work it out or nothing. I don't worry about it. I know where it is. I don't worry about it. I can't believe I said that to the Lord. And you know, you know on Judgment Day, you know it's going to be one brother standing in line ain't going to be able to take no for an answer. Yeah. Going to be one brother in line looking for a hookup. You know, trying to see if he knows somebody at the gate. You know, in line like ain't nothing wrong. Then he step up and he hears some bad news. 
go to hell. It's me, dog. Let me holler at you. Let me holler at you. Jesus. 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 Oh, you gonna play me, huh? essential for a long time you know that's the third time I've shown that clip and and the reason why is because he hits at uh, one of these central issues uh, that people believe uh, and this this goes for uh, non-christians non-church people uh, including people who go to church uh, there's a core theological belief that he touches on there that runs so deep and it's not a new thing uh, this is something that goes all the way back. If you look at the people of God all the way back in the Old Testament, it is one of the central key issues uh, that is a problem throughout the entire Old Testament is this continual uh, theological idea or belief. Uh, then if you move into when Jesus comes, it is the central thing Jesus is trying to correct in people's theology. He again and again and again and again and again addresses this. Every interaction he has with somebody in the New Testament, that's recorded for us in the Gospels, almost every single one of them is directly attacking this one central faulty theological belief. Then if you move into the time after Jesus, into the early church, you can look at the book of Acts. The first church business meeting in Acts 15 was over this same issue of bad theology that creeps up again. If you look at the New Testament and all the stuff that is written in it, there's a guy named Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. It was a part of Paul's former bad theology that he had to get corrected and fix in his own life. And then he realizes that when he writes the letter to the Romans, to the Corinth church, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae, to the church in Philippi, uh, also when he writes a letter to Timothy, every single one of them, they have this same issue of bad theology he's got to correct. And then if you go into the modern church, we still have the same one issue of bad theology that continues to persist. What is it? Well, at the core of it is a problem of grace. We don't understand grace. We don't comprehend grace. And the reason why I show a bumper video that's a little odd and weird, and you're like, what on earth was that? It's because when we talk about grace, honest to goodness, as much as we think we know it, we still kind of go, I'm not really sure I understand what that was all about. We don't. We think we get it, but we don't. Why? Because there's a core piece of theology that is wrong and messed up that has plagued humanity from the beginning of time until now. What is it? It's the idea that good people go to heaven and bad people don't. It sounds right. It sounds like it ought to be so. I mean, after all, isn't God good? And if God's good, wouldn't you think that good people would go to heaven and bad people wouldn't? Which is why when you ask people, 93% of people say they believe in heaven. And then the follow-up question is, do you think you will go? 100% say yes. Well, almost 100%. But then the question after that is, is do you know somebody who's not? Yes. So it's like, I know I'm going, but I know somebody who's not. Really? How could that be true? How is it that everybody thinks they're going, but they always know somebody who's not? And they typically, it's because I know somebody who's a little worse than I am, and so, you know, there's got to be a cutoff somewhere, but I'm pretty sure I make the cut, you know, whatever it is. 
You know, if not, I still got some time. I can make up for it. That is a predominant belief, and this is not a new thing. This isn't just a non-church church thing. This isn't just an Old Testament, New Testament thing. This is pervasive throughout the entire scripture. It's funny because in that clip, there's some things Steve Harvey gets right. There's some things he gets wrong. And the stuff he gets right is actually the stuff uh, we think he got wrong. And the stuff he got wrong is actually the stuff that, or the stuff we think he got wrong is actually the stuff he gets right. Like the thing that we think he gets right is it's hard to get to heaven. No, it's not. It's not hard to get to heaven at all. All you have to do is say, God, I'm sorry, I messed up. Can you forgive me? Yes. How hard was that? Really, I mean, it, you didn't have to earn nothing. You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to go kill the wicked witch of the West, get her broomstick, bring it back. Uh, you didn't have to go on some quest and climb some high mountain, go through the river, or go across the river below. You didn't have to do any of that stuff. You know, like, for instance, even our own time, when somebody says, well, I'm sorry. Well, it's not that easy. You don't just say you're sorry and get out of it. It, it works with God, though. It actually is that easy. It really is that easy. So what he gets wrong is when he says it's hard to get to heaven. No, it's not. It's actually pretty easy. The hard part is understanding just how easy it is, honestly. That's the hard part, getting your mind around grace. And then he talks about how up in heaven, there'll be people, people who get there who think they're going to heaven or not. Unfortunately, he's right about that. And it's kind of funny the way he tells it until you read it in Scripture, and Jesus says, no, no, he was actually right about that. The longest sermon Jesus, we have recorded that Jesus spoke, or Jesus gave, uh, or the longest sort of recording we have is the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure he taught other sermons longer, but the longest recorded sermon we have is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's found for us in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The entire premise of the Sermon on the Mount is all about this issue of bad theology that good people go to heaven, bad people don't. Go back over and look at it. Some of the verses you know, you may not be able to put it together until I say this. Now, I used to think the Sermon on the Mount was this great, wonderful, lovey, feely, touchy, wonderful sermon because it starts off kind of like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, uh, all those kind of things, right? But he's beginning that by saying all the people you don't think are going to heaven are. The people who you think are going to heaven, they're not. That's where he gets to. Because right after he says all the people, all these blessed people, he says this in Matthew chapter five. He says, I tell you that, Unless your righteousness, unless your goodness, unless your good personness, if you will, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So who were the Pharisees? These were people who their full-time job was being a good person. They didn't have, it, they didn't, they didn't have a job. They didn't go earn a living. They actually lived off of the charity and the welfare of the people. And their full-time job was trying to keep every single one of the commandments perfectly. That was their job, full-time. Here was the ironic thing. They would rely on other people to give them money so that they could do everything they could to be righteous and perfect before God, and then they would look down on all the people who are supporting them for not being as good as them. Kind of odd, huh? Almost sounds like what preachers do. Anyways, um, <laughs> I don't want to convict myself, so let's just move on. Uh, so these people who prided themselves on doing everything perfect, and all the people said, if there's anybody who's getting in, getting in clearly they are. And he, he drops this bombshell. He says, unless you're far better than they are, you're not getting in. And then he says some verses, maybe some of you all remember, uh, where he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, if you've ever just wanted to get rid of somebody or ever hated somebody, you're just as guilty. You're not getting in. And we would all say, well, I never killed nobody, but haven't you wanted to? I mean, if there was no repercussions, if you lived in fantasy land 
would you not want at the very least get rid of a few people on the road? Like, I used to play that video game Spy Hunter back in the day. Remember that? The car had guns on the front and oil slick on the back. How many of y'all wish you had an oil slick you could just drop on a tailgater? You don't because it's illegal and would cause problems and you can't do it. How many of y'all wish that when somebody cuts you off, you could hit a button, it would shoot guns at them or something, right? Or there's the spiky wheels that shoot out for somebody who gets too close. How many times have you been there with somebody's beard into your lane and you look up, oh, they're on their phone. Wouldn't it be nice to have those spiky wheels that come out to keep them away? That's why video games are so popular to allow you to do this thing. Somebody gets in your way, you just take them out. Like for those of you gamers, a lot of you in here, how many people have you killed online? <laughs> Mass murderers your kids are. <laughs> and I say your kids, if you're under the age of 50, you're probably with them too, right? <laughs> oh, they're zombies. No, they're not. Just saying. And they're not all war games either. They're just other games where just, you know, they get in your way and you just take them out. You just, why? Because they're annoying me. Because if you lived in a world where there weren't consequences for that kind of thing, you'd do it. And it's not your morality that keeps you from doing it. It's laws. It's like a lifetime imprisonment that keeps you from doing it, isn't it? If, if there was a purge day, remember the purge movies, right? I think I've made my point. Jesus says, you're no better. And if you've ever wanted to eliminate somebody, sorry, you ain't getting in. Okay, let's hit another one. Next one on the list. He hits right at adultery. Oh, well, I never cheated on my wife. Yeah, but have you ever wanted to? You ever looked twice? You ever thought, wouldn't it be nice? You ever looked at some rich guy and go, man, I wish you made as much as he did? You ever had those thoughts? Well, if you even had it one time, you ain't getting in. You ever looked at something you shouldn't, someone you shouldn't, thought something you shouldn't? You're not getting in. Sorry. Not good enough. In other words, if you want to go by the good enough standard, the good enough standard, Jesus says, is perfection. And if you don't meet up to the perfection standard, you're not getting in. You want to still play the good enough standard? Certainly good people get in, but you've got to be perfect. Well, yeah, but Jesus, we always say nobody's perfect. Okay, then we have a problem then, don't we? And so he gets down to the conclusion of his message when we get down to chapter 7. Towards the end, he says this, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. That last guy... Jesus, Jesus, not everybody. That's actually a true story, what he just said there. He says, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do a bunch of good stuff for you? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I tell people about you? Didn't I like, drive out demons? I guess in our, our equivalency in nowadays time, we'd say, didn't I help people recover from their addictions and, and the problems that they had in their life? You know, wasn't I you know, a sponsor at Celebrate Recovery? Come on, wasn't I doing all those kind of things? Come on, seriously. If anybody deserves to get in, don't I? I don't know you. He says, you get lost, man. I don't know you. What? Tell me that's not the scariest verse in all the scriptures. He's talking about people who come to church, who preach messages, who help people get out of things that are holding them back, even do miraculous stuff. We call those people saints. Like in order to be a saint in the Catholic church, you have to perform a miracle. He says, there'll be some of those who on that day ain't getting in. How are you going to feel when you see somebody you just know was going to get in walking the other way? Wouldn't it freak you out? The key there at the end is he says, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. See, I tell this, I tell this every single week. This life is about nothing more than being good enough to earn your place in heaven, right? <laughs> now, 
If you don't know why people are laughing, it's because every single week I say the same thing. Every message I've given for the past 10 years has been the same message, that this life is about nothing more than establishing, growing, developing, having, sharing a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that you'll enjoy for all eternity. That's it. It ain't hard to get in heaven. If, if you want to have a relationship with God for all time, then begin one. I, I mean, you know, what is hell? It's a, it's a place for people who don't want a relationship with God. It doesn't even make any sense if you think about it. Why would everybody go to heaven? Like, let me get this straight. Do you want a relationship with God? No, I don't want anything to do with him. But I want to spend all eternity with him. No, you want an existence without him. He's created just the place for you. You're going to find it's void of all the things you actually love and enjoy. You're going to find it's void of all of the things he's already blessed you with and graced you with right now that you just totally take for granted and don't even realize it's the grace of God, the reason why you have it. What is heaven? It is a place for humanity, for those who want a relationship with God the way he's always wanted to have a relationship with you and me. He created that here on earth. We messed it up. He says, next time around, I'm not going to let it be messed up. People don't want a relationship with me. That's fine. I'll let you do your own thing for all eternity. If you want a relationship with me, then begin one. But what about my sin? What about the fact I'm not perfect? No problem. I took care of that. That's why Jesus died on the cross. The message over and over and over again throughout the entire Bible is this. This was the issue that, that the Jews in the Old Testament got wrong. First, they thought they were, they were accepted and everybody else wasn't because they were God's chosen people. Then they realized, you know, there's a lot of people who are part of the chosen people who are making a lot of really bad decisions and God judges them. So let's re- redefine this. Okay, uh, you got to be a chosen person of God, plus you got to do all the right things and keep all the commandments. That was their belief then. And that belief continued till Jesus came on the scene. And over and over and over again, Jesus, like in this message here, he's telling you this isn't it. What's the most famous story Jesus tells? We call it the parable of the prodigal son. Some of y'all have heard of that. It's in Luke 15. You know what the story of that's all about? It's actually not about the prodigal son. Why do we focus on the prodigal son? Because we're a religious, hypocritical, judgmental church, so we always like to point at the idiot brother, right? The one who made a lot of mistakes. What was his sin? Anybody remember what his sin was? He, he, he asked dad for all of his money, and then what did he go do with all that money? Somebody say, I can't hear you. Squandered it. How did he squander it? On prostitutes. Oh, yeah. We somehow all know that. Do you know where that accusation comes from? We don't actually know if he did all that. You know who says that? The religious, churchy, older brother. Has anything changed in the church in 2,000 years? No. We're always pointing the finger at those, oh, you want to come to church after what you've been doing? Mm, I don't know. And we still have this idea that I deserve to be here because of what I've done. Now, certainly there was a time when I needed God's grace, and I still need God's grace for a few little mistakes I make along the way. But you know, I tell you what, I'm doing a pretty good job doing what God wants me to do. Let me read you what the old brother says. When he realized that some people were getting in 100% out of grace, like this little brother, he doesn't go into the party. And so what does his father do? His father comes out to him. Now, his father goes out to the younger brother who is a sinner who's, who's you know, making his way back home just from a far, from a far distance, you know, one step, and the father's out running to meet him. The older brother has got his hands outside, doesn't want to come in. You'll see that the father is coming out to you too. And he says this. He says, why don't you come on in? He says, look, all these years I've been slaving and doing everything you wanted me to do, and you don't ever give me a party. In other words, 
Look at all the stuff I've been doing, and God, why are bad things happening to me? I deserve better than this. I don't deserve what's happened. I, I should be healthy. I shouldn't have people betray me. I shouldn't have bad stuff happen in my life, but you don't let any of that stuff happen. I should be having the party right now, God, not them. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home with squandered all your property with prostitutes, you go and kill the fat calf for him. Do you see the bitterness in that? Do you hear the judgmental nature? Now, if you let the older brother run the father's house, do you think the younger brother's coming home? Who's running the church in the modern day? The older brothers. That's why your friends don't want to come here. That's why they can't believe you come here. I don't want to come to that judgmental, hypocritical place that's going to call me out for the mistakes I've made and make up stuff about the stuff I've done, whether they know me or not. You don't know me. Why are you judging me? This is the modern church right here. And this whole point, how does the story end? Blows your mind. The story ends with the younger brother who's made a mess of his life having a party with the father in the father's house. And at the story's end, where's the older brother? Outside the father's house. Does he ever go in? We don't know. The story ends. He doesn't tell us how it ends. This is a story for you and me because we're in the house right now. We think we're in the house. We think we're in the father's house. We think we're doing everything right. The question is, on that day, will you get to the point where God says, I never knew you? On that day, at the end of time, will you be outside of the Father's house for all of eternity? If you think that you deserve to be in because of what you've done, you're going to be on the outside. But if you want to be in, regardless of who else God lets in, because you realize you're, everybody's in there by grace, then come on. Enjoy. We, we talked about it at the Last Supper when we had our Passover service that Jesus says, I won't eat or drink of the fruit of the vine again until we meet together in heaven. In other words, he says, there's a party waiting for us on the other side. I can't wait to party with you when we get there. But if you don't want to come in, that's your choice. Think about all of the people that Jesus meets. Every single one of them that I've gone through is a message of grace. Like even when he calls his disciples, every one of those are misfits. Every one of them was left out of the religious community. Every single one of them. That's why when they you know, become leaders, people are like, who are these losers? These guys weren't trained. These guys weren't skilled. Nobody selected them for this kind, of, this kind of role. What was Jesus doing pulling these guys out? One of my favorite stories, though, was Nathaniel. If you remember Nathaniel's story, uh, he's sitting under a tree when he hears about, his, you know, Philip comes and says, listen, I think we've, we found the Messiah. He's like, really? Who? Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I did just take a trip over there, and my staff keeps joking me because I keep on saying sort of piously, jokingly, well, having been over there now, I can tell you. Um, one of the eye-opening things that happened over there is we went and saw several of the old ruins of some of the stuff that the Jewish people built. I mean, some of the palaces that Herod built, amazing, incredible, okay? Then we went to go see some of the Roman cities, Amazing, incredible. I mean, these columns, huge columns, roads that are still there, um, just amazing, uh, opulent is what I would call them. 
I mean, even in modern times, we try to mimic some of the opulence of Rome. Having grown up down in South Florida, there's a, the main drive going over to the island of Palm Beach, the, the place of the rich and famous. And you also see some of these same kind of roads over in uh, uh, California, in the Beverly Hills area. They have these palm trees that line the sides of the roads that go way up high. Romans would do the exact same kind of things with, with columns. The Roman columns would just line the city streets, beautifully gorgeous and impressive, right? You know what Nazareth was? They were quick cave dwellers. Cavemen, like, like Fred Flintstone era. I'm not kidding. They lived in caves, people. I'm not talking like, oh, there was a cave out back somewhere on their property. I'm saying they actually lived in caves. There are hundreds of thousands of caves all over Israel. I, I would not, that was one thing that blew my mind, okay? When you get to Nazareth, it's this whole like, village of caves. And what they would do is they would just wall off the front of the cave, and that would be their house. If you found a cave big enough and deep enough that had enough space, what you would do is you would just kind of find a way where the kind of cave kind of comes out to the front. It would always be kind of uneven. You would just wall that off. When it says Jesus was a carpenter, most likely he was a stonemason that did this kind of work for people. They didn't, he wasn't working with wood. There's no wood over there to build with. That's why every time they want to build, they have to go get permission from somebody who owns a forest in another country to get the wood to be brought in because all their woods is scraggly, skinny, crooked stuff. He wasn't doing fine woodworking, right? He was a stonemason. And they would wall off the front of these caves. So you picture, here's Nathaniel going, a caveman? You're telling me that the Messiah is a caveman. Really? I just picture the Geico commercials. <laughs> Could that be the grace phrase? So easy a caveman taught it? I don't know. Some of y'all get that. Some of y'all don't. That's fine. So he has that thought. Let me play this out. And Philip says, well, you just got to come and meet him. When Jesus sees Nathanael, who had just said, basically was busting on Jesus for being a caveman, Jesus says, here comes an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Well, he's just made fun of Jesus. And then Jesus calls him out for being a guy who's so pure. And then he says to them, Nathanael goes, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. You heard what I said. <laughs> and he says, um, and Jesus says, you know, you believe because I just told you that I heard what you said under, because I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater stuff than that. And he calls him to be a follower. Think about that. He's just been making fun of Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to be one of my close followers. Just let that sink in for a minute. Like, if you were out in the lobby making fun of a guy you saw coming into the building about how goofy he looks and then told the secretary inside, did you see that kind of, you know, crazy, eccentric kind of weird guy? What kind of bum was that? Man, I don't know, you need to get better people around here. And then you realize that's the boss? <laughs> and the secretary tells him what you just said? You feeling good about getting that job? Wouldn't you call that an act of grace? That's how the thing starts in John. That's how these people get called. It's an act of grace. And then some of the stories you know uh, goes on. There's a woman at the well, John chapter 4. Uh, this is a woman. They have this dialogue, and Jesus is like, hey, why don't you get your husband back? We'll kind of sit down and talk about all this. Yeah, yeah, you don't have a husband, do you? You've been shacking up a bunch. You've been living with several different guys. The guy you're living with now is not your husband. Yeah, let's talk about where the right place to worship is, right? And then they start to you know, change the topic. topic. There's a line in there that we, we call it a throwaway line. You don't really think anything of it. But she says this. 
It says, leaving her water jar, that she goes back into town and says to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, was the miraculous stuff that he just like clairvoyantly knew about her past? What she's saying is, there's a guy over there at this well, you gotta come meet him, who invited me to have a relationship with God and he knows everything about me. He knows about my past. Like you could see the first question they would ask is like, does he know who you are? Does he know the kind of person you are? No, no, he knew before I ever even talked to him everything about me. And he still wanted a relationship with me. What's flooring her is the grace issue. And she's making sure everybody in town knows it's a grace issue. I didn't lie. He knows everything I knew before he even started talking to me. Of course, I don't even have to go through the whole John chapter 8, woman caught in adultery. That's a pretty obvious one. Zacchaeus, guy who's a tax collector, hated in town. Jesus says, I want to eat lunch with you. Come on, let's go over to your place. And people says, what's going on here? And he says, listen, I came to seek and save the lost. Not the people who earned it, deserved it. Or Matthew, who's one of the tax collectors. He's also one of the guys who becomes one of Jesus' followers. He was another tax collector. And the, the, the religious group's like, what's, what's, what you doing over there with all the sinners? He's like, I, I, I came to hang out with the sinners. That's why I came. Come on, after all, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Where else do you think the church ought to be? You think we should be going around trying to find other people from other churches to come to our church? No. We should be finding people who think that they're not good enough or think that God you know, expects them to be a certain way. Those people need to try to find. We need to let them know this is a place of grace. This is, this is the central place of grace right here. And the more that we become about grace, the more we are preaching the message of God. Move to the, oh, sorry, I gotta finish this out. What are the last two stories we have about Jesus, last two interactions he has? One is where he's on the cross, and one is after he's risen from the dead. I mentioned one of them last week, thief on the cross, right? Very last conversation he has with somebody is with this guy who can do nothing to earn anything and is the worst of the worst, deserving to death. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And thief says back, all right, man, I tell you right now, from this day forward, I'm going to do everything I can to earn and deserve what you just said. Man, I'm going to make up for it. Is that what he says? No, he, he doesn't have any time to make up for what he's done, right? He can't ever possibly be good enough to deserve this. It is the epitome, the ultimate climax, pinnacle of there is nothing you could possibly do to deserve it. And you've got somebody who doesn't have any time left in their life to ever do anything worthy of it. He says, today be with me in paradise. And then the other final story you see in Jesus' life is after he's risen from the dead, he has that conversation with Peter on the beach where after Peter's denied him, he looks at Peter and he says, I still want you leading this thing. Really? There's got to be somebody better. I mean, I just chickened out at the moment of most importance when you needed somebody to be there to pray with you, I fell asleep, and then you needed somebody there to back you up, I left. And not only did I leave, I lied about ever even knowing you. I cared more about myself than you in that moment. He's like, yeah, I still want you to lead this thing, though. Is that not an act of grace? We wouldn't let that guy lead anything. You'd be out on your ear. Yeah, you can come and you can visit, but you can't lead. And then everything in the New Testament that comes after that, Paul writes again and again and again this same theme uh, about how it's all about grace. He says, you, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I used to be all about thee being good enough, and I was trying to be the best of anybody. And I look back over all of that, and I realize that was all for nothing. He says, I look at everything I try to do and I count it all as a loss. All I care about is knowing him. Why? Because I don't want to be on that day when I'm standing before Jesus and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's why I want to spend all my life just getting to know him. 
having this loving faith relationship with him. This is the message all throughout the entire New Testament. He summarizes all of it up with Ephesians 2 where he says, for it is by grace that you are saved, not of works. You can't do anything to earn or deserve this. And this is a message, I could preach this every single Sunday and the majority of us wouldn't get it. Because deep within your heart, even right now, is still this idea that God loves you a little bit more when you're good and he is so disappointed with you, he's punishing you when you're, when you, when you, when you're bad. You'll come in here and sometimes you'll take communion feeling like as if, ah, oh, I can come this morning with a smile on my face, held, held high because, you know, I've been pretty good this week. That's not why you come forward for communion. You ever had a moment where you felt, I can't come forward for communion because I'm not good enough? Because of what I've done this week, I don't deserve to go up there. I'll just sit right here. You realize that's the one Sunday of the year you're probably in the right position to come forward for communion? And if you came, it'd be the one Sunday of the year where you actually understood what this was all about? You don't come up here because you deserve it. You simply come up here because you realize you need it. This is about Jesus paying for your sins, not about you earning it. It is 100% grace. That's it. And God doesn't love you any more than he loves somebody who's not here this morning. He doesn't enjoy having a relationship with you any more than he would enjoy having a relationship with anybody else. That is grace. It's a message that is so hard for us to comprehend. Because deep within our souls, we would not say that we were Buddhists, but we would still believe in karma. And what is karma? It's anti-grace. And God says, no, I just love you. Nathaniel, come on, follow me. Matthew, come follow me. Thief on the cross, today we're going there. Paul, I look back over my life and I realize what an idiot I was trying to earn all this stuff. All I want to do is just know him. I just want to have a loving relationship with him I can enjoy for all eternity. Would you join with me to close our time in prayer? Father, help us be humble enough to realize we still struggle to grasp and accept grace. Every time we felt a sense of pride about how good we've been or had some feeling of confidence, ever looked at somebody else to judge their sin, we quickly move from someone who is in your house out of grace to an older brother who stands outside, arms folded, frustrated and angry that you're not doing what we think you ought to do because of what we've done to deserve what we think we deserve. The message we see again and again and again from the beginning to the end of your word is nobody's good enough. You simply love everybody and provided a means and an opportunity for everybody to have a relationship with you. The only question that remains is, will we accept your gift, your invitation, or walk away and do our own thing? Father, may we um, think about our relationship with you and how we can share that relationship with other people. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.